Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Malachi chapter 1 verse 1. It says, The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now who was Malachi? Well, his name means my messenger. Uh, there's some people that think, well, that's just a title, that he's just a messenger. Uh, but m- a lot of people, myself included, just think, oh, well, that's his name, Malachi, my messenger. Um, after God gives his message to the people of Israel through Malachi in this last book, there's going to be 400 years of silence. The Lord's not going to speak through prophets. Many generations will pass. And uh, un- until there's another prophet that's raised up by the name of John the Baptist. And uh, so what do we know about the prophet Malachi as a person? Actually, very little. Um, what we do know, we basically can deduct, and we'll go through that in a minute or two, we can deduct from what we discover in the book of Malachi. For, ex- for example, we can deduct from this book uh, when he wrote it. The reason why is we know that when Malachi wrote this book, the temple had been rebuilt in his day. Why? Because he addresses temple sacrifices. So it makes sense. If he's addressing temple sacrifices, there must be a temple. Um, We can deduct that he lived during the time when Persia was the dominant world empire. Remember the Babylonians took the Israelites into, or Judah into captivity for 70 years. At the end of the 70 years, by the end of the 70 years, um, Persia had been the new world empire. and, And so... God had prophesied that a guy by the name of Cyrus would let his people rebuild the temple in the walls of Jerusalem. And sure, sure, uh, sure enough, uh, Cyrus the Persian, uh, he allowed the Jews to return to um, Jerusalem. So we can deduct that Malachi lived during the time when Persia was a dominant world empire. Why? Because in verse 8, he refers to their governor, um, in chapter 1 of verse 8. And the word governor there is of Persian origin. So it kind of gives us a clue there. We can also deduct that he was either a contemporary of Nehemiah, in other words, he was alive when Nehemiah was alive, or right after Nehemiah, because he addresses the same issues that Nehemiah addressed towards the end of his book. What are those things? He addressed the corrupt priesthood, the neglect of tithes and offerings and intermarriage with pagan wives. Those are what, what Nehemiah dealt with in the end of his ministry, and that's what Malachi deals with in his ministry. And so for this reason, we can assume Malachi wrote this book sometime, sometime between 432 and 425 B.C., so roughly about 400 years before Christ was born. Now, the book of Malachi, like I said, is four chapters, but it can really be broken up into three main sections. Um, first of all, God's past love of the nation of Israel. That's chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And then God's present complaint against his people. And that begins in verse 6 of chapter 1 and goes all the way through chapter 3, verse 15. And then finally, God's promise of his, comfort, of his coming. And that's uh, chapter 3, verse 16 to chapter 4, verse 6, which is the end of the book. So this morning, like I said, we're not going to do all four chapters. We're going to be looking at the first section and a portion of the second section. So beginning there, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau's brother, says the Lord? 
Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though, uh, even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places, thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see, and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. So what's the Lord doing? He's telling Israel, I have loved you. He's talking, speaking about his past love for them. And what's Israel's response? And there's going to be a kind of a, a back and forth here. That's the way Malachi wrote this prophecy. It's a, a discussion back and forth between God and his people. And so God tells us stuff. I have loved you, Jacob, which is another word for Israel, basically. You know, Jacob was the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and so their response to that statement of the Lord is how? In what way have you loved us, Lord? You know, that's kind of a common thing with Christians or maybe people in general. You know, the Bible tells us that God loves us. And sometimes we are tempted to say, well, Lord, if, if you really love me, why are you allowing this in my life? Haven't you ever kind of wondered about that? Something happens, it's like, this is not part of my life plan or something just kind of you know, knocks you sideways, you, you didn't see it coming. It's like, Lord, why, if you love me, why am I going through this? Well, this is what they were basically saying. Well, the Lord's response to Israel, what's his response? His response is, look at your brother Esau. You know, Jacob had a twin brother named Esau. They had the same parents. What's the Lord trying to tell Jacob or telling Israel? I'm proving my love for you by not treating you in the same way that I've treated Esau. That's basically what he's saying there. Again, I mentioned Esau and Jacob were twin brothers. They had the same parents. Their parents were Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac was Abraham's son. In Genesis chapter 25, Rebekah's pregnant. And uh, uh, I've never been pregnant, although I look like I might be. But, um, you know, in pregnancy, you know, I, I remember when my wife was pregnant, you know, there, all of a sudden there'd be like, sometimes she'd get these butterflies in her stomach or something's going on or the baby's moving around or something. Well, evidently, Rebecca had a really rough time, a really rough pregnancy. And in chapter 25 of Genesis, she starts calling out to the Lord. And she's like, if my pregnancy is going so well, why is there like a WWF title match going on in my, inside of me? I mean, there's just something going on. And the Lord answered and said to, you, to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And you know the story, right? Esau was the firstborn of the twins. Jacob came out after and uh, so Esau, being the firstborn, he was in line to receive the double portion of the inheritance. So in other words, the firstborn got uh, an extra portion of the inheritance. It was just a, a Hebrew tradition, basically. And, uh, but we know the story. Esau despised his inheritance, and he ended up selling it to his younger brother Jacob for a bowl of stew. I mean, the guy was just hungry, and he just wanted to satisfy his, his basest desire, which was food. And he said, man, I could care less about that inheritance. Uh, give, me, give me that bowl of stew, and I'll give you that inheritance. You know, they made this exchange there. And uh, Esau became the father of the Edomites. And the Edomites, as a nation, they became the enemies of Jacob, or the children of Israel. 
In fact, it's interesting to note, the last Edomites mentioned in scriptures are the Herods of Jesus' day. They were, they were Edomites. They were Idumeans, which is an Edomite, basically. They're the last ones that are mentioned in scriptures. Now, one thing that I know always happens, and it happens with me sometimes, you know, you might be sitting there uh, listening as, as I've been reading through that first, first uh, few verses, and something jumps out at you, and you're stuck. And that pra- phrase is probably when God says, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And you're like, whoa, how can God hate Esau? What did Esau do? I mean, what's the story with that? And sometimes that'll just occupy the rest of your morning. I could be keep talking, and you're just thinking, man, what's this about God hating Esau? And uh, so I'm asking you, don't tune me out at this point. How can God hate Esau? It's interesting. Let's do a little word study. The Hebrew word that's used here for hated is the word seini, and it literally does mean to hate. So that's how it's the translators use the word hate. Um, but... It obviously does not always mean exactly the same in every scripture because it depends on the context. Let me give you an example. In Genesis 29, verse 31, it's talking about Rachel and, excuse me, about, uh, um, yeah, Rachel and Leah. And it says, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah and Rachel were both Jacob's wives. That's another story. We won't go into that, but um, <laughs> opening up a can of worms there. Um, when the Lord saw that Le- Leah was unloved, he opened her womb. That word unloved is that same Hebrew word, seini. So the translators in that verse didn't say hate, didn't say when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, but that she was unloved. And Leah was not hated. And you know, the, the, the hate that I'm thinking of is that where you go, man, I wish she would drop dead and die. I mean, that's, that's kind of when you think of hate, right? That's like, man, I wish the person was just dead or gone or whatever, or wiped out or whatever. Um, Jacob obviously didn't hate Leah in that sense. But Leah was loved less. In fact, probably a lot less than Rachel was. Jacob loved Rachel. Um, Rachel was the first daughter that, that, that Jacob saw. And, he, man, he just fell in love with her, right? And he wanted to marry her. Uh, he got tricked by his uncle Laban, and uh, he ended up doing a switcheroo, and, and, and uh, he ended up marrying Leah first. Leah was an older daughter, and uh, so then Jacob worked another seven years to, to marry Rachel. And uh, so, like, you know, that was like his beauty queen. Leah, Leah was maybe not the best looking, or there was just, you know, he just didn't have a desire for her, but Rachel, man, she was, you know, that's, she was the best thing. But you know what's interesting at the end of Jacob's life, Jacob is buried with, uh, wanted to be buried with Leah and not with Rachel. I thought that was really interesting. Anyways, that's, that's just a side thing. So the word hated here is different, I think, than our concept of hate. If God hated Esau the way man hates fellow man, I think Esau would have been dead. I mean, he would have been cursed and perished. I mean, God had the power to do it, right? Um, But eventually, as this text shows, uh, the Edomites as a nation, they were cursed, and they did end up perishing off the earth. But Esau the man, Esau actually was blessed in many ways. In Genesis 33, verse 9, and 36, verse 7, it indicates that God allowed Esau to gain great possessions, not 
unlike Jacob. In fact, they were both in the same land, and they had so many, so much cattle and so many servants. And so, I mean, they were they had grown so much; the land couldn't sustain both of them. So God obviously materially had blessed Esau as well as Jacob. Genesis 36 indicates that God blessed Esau with many children and many descendants, and they ended up becoming the nation of Edom. Of course, that was you know, not unlike Jacob. He had many descendants and became the nation of Israel. So in, in certain senses, God did bless Esau, but the Lord blessed Jacob in a way that Esau wasn't blessed. Jacob is the one who inherited the Abrahamic covenant. Jacob is the one that through his descendants, the Messiah would come, Jesus Christ. Um, through his offspring, the nations of the earth would be blessed. And he was also given the, 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 the covenant, the land covenant. He was given uh, the promised land, the land of Canaan. So in contrast to God's love for Jacob, Esau was unloved, or you could say hated in that, in that concept, but it's not the way we think of hate anyways. So Paul, the apostle Paul in Romans, he quotes this verse, that phrase actually in Malachi verse 2. He, he quotes it in Romans 9 verse 10. And he says this, and not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the pers- purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. The point being here, the Lord chose Jacob before he had done any good or any evil. See, Jacob didn't do anything to earn God's love. God just, from the very beginning, said, I love Jacob. In fact, if you look at the life of Jacob, man, this guy was a con artist. He was a conniver. He was a, very de- he was a deceiver in his very early days. And if you look at the children of Israel, eventually they turned away from the Lord God over and over again. And he sent them into exile. He punished them because they deserved it. And yet, God in his grace and his mercy chose Jacob over and above Esau. And it was nothing that they earned, nothing that they deserved. It was all God's grace. So how does the Lord love Jacob? By not treating him as he deserves. You know, it's really the same for any of us. Sometimes, you know, we blow it, we do something wrong, and we go, oh, man, I I don't deserve God's love. Well, you know what? If you hadn't blown it, if you hadn't done it, you still don't deserve God's love because you're a sinner, okay? None of us deserve God's love. And so it's, it's basically the same for us. Next time you start questioning God's love for you, like, God, why are you allowing this to happen? Look around at the lost and dying world around you because they're like Esau. Jesus Christ has blessed you and me with a way to have eternal life through him. Man, we, we have eternal life. The lost and dying world doesn't have that. We, we want them to have that. The Lord God doesn't want anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. And he has blessed you and I with a way to have a, whole, a relationship with a holy God that other people don't have. So, so next time you think, man, well, God, why are you loving me? Just look at what he hasn't, man. You have eternal life, man. You have an opportunity. You have a relationship with God, the Father, a holy God, even though we're unholy. And none of us deserve it. It's based on his love for us. So basically in this first portion of scripture, the Lord is just communicating to, uh, to the nation of Israel, man, I, I've loved you. I have always loved you. And I always will love you. But now he's going to reveal them his complaint against them. Verse 6. 
A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts? To you priests who despise my name, yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? So the very first complaint here is directed where it should be with the spiritual leaders, the priests of Israel. So from the next rest of this path, you guys can just not listen anymore. I can just preach to myself. I'm a spiritual leader here, right? I'm, well, we'll get into that later on. But The spiritual leaders, and in this case the priests of Israel, they set the example for the people. They represented the people to God and God to the people. It was a very, very uh, major, big responsibility. And a, a lot of responsibility does rest upon the leadership of the body of Christ for pastors and Christian leaders. In fact, James in his letter writes in James 3 verse 1, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. If I'm standing up here sharing God's word with you, and this is what the Lord says, I better be accurate. I better be really sharing what the Lord says and not being a false prophet. My life should reflect what I say up here. 1 Peter 4.17, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Judgment always begins in the house of God first, and particularly in this case, with leadership. So what is this complaint against the priests? He says, you priests, you're not honoring me as your father. You're not revering me as your master. You are despising my name. And the priests of Israel, their response here is, well, how are we despising your name? And, G- and the Lord tells them, verse 7, you offer defiled food on my altar. But say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. They were offering polluted, defiled, polluted sacrifices on God's altar. And their response was, well, how have we defiled you? God says, you're, you're putting polluted sacrifices on the altar. And they go, well, yeah, but how does that pollute you, God? How does that affect you? In other words, they weren't denying that they were polluted, that they were polluted sacrifices they were, they were offering, but they denied that it was somehow a reflection of God. And the Lord's response, he says, by having contempt for the altar, basically you're having contempt for me. Verse 8, when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. <laughs> governor. Uh, would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? See, according to Levitical law, the priests were supposed to offer an unblemished sacrifice. No spots, no, no deformities. It was to be a male of a certain age, and, and just you know, it, it was supposed to be a, just a spotless sacrifice. Why? Because it was a picture of Jesus Christ, the man who committed no sin for us man who died on a cross for our sins. It was a picture, and so it was very important to God that these sacrifices were unblemished. But instead, they basically offered what they themselves didn't want, the rejects. It's like, you know what? Hey, i got this beautiful-looking lamb, man. It's, that's going to be awesome, man. I'll bring it to the county fair. I'll get awards for that, and I'm just going to sacrifice this one. It's like I called it tripod because it hops on three legs, you know, and that's what they were doing, basically. They kept the best of the flocks for themselves, and they were offering the Lord the rejects. And the Lord was telling them, hey, when you offer substandard, blemished sacrifices on my altar, it's a reflection of how much you honor me in your heart. It's a reflection of what you think about me. 
So what's the application? Well, for pastors, man, it's a big application for me. Do I honor the Lord with the best of my service? That's a thing I have to ask myself. Do I have a sloppy approach to ministry? It's like, well, you know, do it whenever. Um, Do I do just enough to get by? Am I a hireling? You know, there are people that are hirelings. In other words, they're, they're in ministry as long as they can get something out of it. Either it feeds their ego, it gives them a sense of power or money, whatever it is, you know, I'll do it as long as I benefit. But as soon as I don't benefit, I'm out of here. That's a hireling. Am I a hireling or am I a true shepherd? That's just, I'm going to lay down my life for the sheep. How I minister is a reflection of my heart's attitude towards the Lord. And so, like I said, you guys don't have to listen. But before you tune me out, listen to this. Peter writes this to the church in 1 Peter 2.9. But you, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So guess what? You're priests too. We're all a holy priesthood. So it really, this applies to all of us in addition to the literal priests of Israel. And so the question we have to ask ourselves, what do we offer the Lord of our time, of our talent, and of our treasure? Do we offer the first fruits or do we offer the leftovers? Like the priests, what you and I offer the Lord, it's a reflection of our heart attitude towards him. It really is. The Lord tells the priests there in verse 8, hey, would your governor be satisfied with what you offer me? In other words, you know, you're offering me the, the substandard you know, quality of things and just the leftovers and the junk. Do you think your governor would be happy if you offered that to him? And of course the answer would be no. Well, for you and I, if we offer to our employers the same level of time, talent, and treasure that we offer the Lord, would we still have our jobs? Think about it. You know, hey, I'll show up to work today. Eh, if I have nothing better going on, then I'll, I'll show up. You think your boss would like that? Or how about, hey, I'm going to do just enough so that I don't get fired. You know, here's my, here's my stuff. You know, your, your boss wouldn't be very happy with that. But somehow we kind of do that in our relationship with the Lord. Ah, it's just church stuff. It's just, yeah, if it fits into my schedule, I'll do it. Or, you know what, I'll just do this and get it. It's just good enough. That's a bad attitude, but it's, it's, a, it's a natural thing, right? Hey, it's good enough. It's, it's just church, you know, what? who cares? Verse 10, who is there among, even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. What God is saying is, hey, you priests, I would rather you just shut the doors of the temple, just close it down, don't offer any more sacrifices, instead of offering these sacrifices that are polluted in vain on my altar. The same sentiment is expressed to the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. In verse 15 of Revelation 3, the Lord's speaking to this lukewarm church. He goes, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. But yeah, you're, and then he goes on to say, but you're lukewarm. I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Do you and I have a lukewarm, casual approach in our relationship with and our service for Jesus? Or are we on fire for him? Verse 11, for from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. 
See, the priests, they had kind of grown complacent. Hey, we're Levites, man. We're the priestly tribe. God had chosen our tribe out of all the tribes of Israel to be priests. I mean, that's just, that's my job. It's just, you know. And, and so they became complacent in their, in their position. And God is saying, hey, I'm going to be worshipped. And if you priests of the tribe of Levi are not going to offer pure sacrifices to me, I'm going to find someone else that will. Peter came to this realization. Peter the Apostle in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. When Cornelius, the Gentile, got saved, it was just like it completely opened Peter's mind. In, Je- in Acts 10, verse 34, it says, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The Bible says God is no respecter of persons. So we can't grow complacent. Oh, I'm a Christian. You know, God loves me. No, don't grow complacent. Verse 12, but you profane it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled and its fruit, its food is contemptible. You also say, oh, what a weariness. And you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick. Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hands, says the Lord? So for these priests, serving the Lord had become a boring, it became boring and it was a nuisance to them. It was full of drudgery and obligation. Ah, I got to go do the sacrifice again, you know. There was no eagerness and there was no joy. They even sneered. It's like, ah, I got to do that again, you know. I got to go into the temple again and do that stuff all over again. And it became like it was a pain for them. There was no joy. There was no love in it. With that attitude, says the Lord says, am I going to accept your offerings? You know, although what we offer to the Lord is important to him, what we offer, but it's also important what our attitude is when we offer it. How, how is our heart? How are we offering it to the Lord? The priests there, they failed on both counts. In fact, I think their attitude about serving the Lord stunk so much that it became manifested in how they served. And I think that's related. It starts in our heart. What's your attitude about the Lord? What's your attitude about ministry? And if you have a a lousy attitude about it, it's going to be reflected in what you do and how you do it. Verse 14, But cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. So a curse would be on the priest who had a male unblemished lamb as required by law. He had one in his possession, but instead he substituted it for one that was blemished or somehow inferior. He thought, ah, God's not going to notice that. Well, guess what? God notices that. The Lord, the priest wasn't deceiving the Lord. He might have deceived his fellow priests or the people that were around, but not deceiving the Lord. The Lord notices those things. In the early church, you know, the, the, the church after Pentecost, it just exponentially exploded. And the Lord was adding those who were being saved daily. Thousands of people were coming to the Lord. And, 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 and there was a lot of slaves in that time. And so there were people that were poor that were coming to the faith in the Lord. And, and they were all coming together. And they had this, this common bond, this fellowship in Jesus Christ. And, and so the people were like, some of the poor people, you know, they didn't have anything. And there were rich people that were getting saved. And they're like, man, we just want to, we just want everybody to be blessed. And so people would sell things and they'd give 
give the money to the, to the apostles so that it would be distributed so that everybody, nobody went without. Nobody was lacking in the early church there in the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, there was a couple people. Their name was Ananias and Sapphira. And they had some property. And they decided, hey, we're going to sell our property. We're going to do what everybody else is doing. We're going we're to sell our property and we'll give it to the church. Or we'll give it to the apostles, I mean. And, uh, and so they did. And the Bible, I'm kind of filling in the blanks here a little bit. But, you know, you kind of wonder, what were they thinking? They, so they sell it and they go, wow, we got more than we thought. Hey, maybe we should just keep a little bit back. You know, nobody's going to know. We'll just pretend like we're giving everything. But let's keep, I mean, we've got this little nest egg here. And, and uh, as a result, Peter told them, Hey, you guys haven't lied to men. You've lied to God. I mean, you didn't have to give it to him. But when you said you were and you, and you pretended that it was all that you're giving it, you're, you're lying. And they, they both fell down dead. And what was the result of that? There was a lot of fear in the church. Fear of the Lord. Respect for the Lord. God's not somebody to mess around with. What the priests were doing... They were communicating to all the peoples and all the nations around them that, hey, God really doesn't need to be honored and feared that much. What they were doing and how they were doing it had an impact on those watching him. And that's why God is so coming to them first and he's so severe with them. In chapter 2, we're going to go in here a little bit here. Chapter 2, verse 1. And now, O priests, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear... And if you will not take it to heart to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have cursed them already because you did not take it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your descendants and spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your solemn feasts, and one will take, uh, one will take you away with it. Then you shall know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant with Levi, Levi may continue, says the Lord of hosts. So, the Lord here is warning the Levitical priest, man, you better take my words to heart. They needed to change their hearts regarding, you know, if they were, how they were half-heartedly serving the Lord and they were despising him by their actions. Now, when an animal was sacrificed, there were certain parts of the animal that wasn't offered to the Lord. The, the, uh, the, um, just the dung, you know, I mean, that, that stuff, there was the skin. There were certain things that weren't offered to the Lord in the sacrifice. What were they to do? They were to take that stuff, they were to take it out of the temple and take it outside of the city because it was unclean and they'd burn it out there. Um, and what the Lord is saying to them, if they don't take his words to heart, he's going to smear that refuse that's supposed to go out outside like to the city dump type of thing. He's going to smear it on their faces and they'll be removed from the temple and they'll be removed from the city. This is pretty graphic, isn't it? I mean, it's like, whoa, Lord, you're saying, wow, that's, he's, he's not messing around. Why is the Lord being this graphic with them? Because he wants the priests to be like their forefathers, the sons of Levi in Moses' day. Do you remember when Moses went up on Mount Sinai? He was up there for 40 days and 40 nights, and, and, uh, and for a long time he was up there, and the children of Israel were kind of waiting. It's like, man, where is Moses? He hasn't come, you know? And so they got, grew kind of impatient, and they asked Aaron, his brother, said, hey, make a, make, a, make a calf or make a god for us to worship. And so Aaron said, hey, give me your earrings, your jewelry, whatever, your extra gold. And he melted it down, and poof, out of the fire came this golden calf. That's what his story was anyways. He fashioned this golden calf, and the children of Israel started worshiping it as their God. And they ended up having a drunken orgy worshiping this golden calf. 
And at that time, God says, Moses, you better get back down because the children of Israel, man, it's bad news. And so Moses goes down there, and as he's walking down there, uh, he's hearing all this noise, and someone says, hey, there's a party going on. And then they realize what was going on. And, uh, of course, Moses severely rebuked Aaron. And then he talks to the people, and he says, hey, whoever you are is on my side, come over here. And you know who came over here? The sons of Levi. The Levites, man. They feared the Lord. They, they, they was probably grieving what they were, saw what was going on. And so they went over to Moses' side, and Moses said, Strap on your swords, boys. We're going to clean house. And they did. And about 3,000 people died that day. What's the Lord trying to do? The Lord is trying to... He wants these priests to have that same fear and respect of him and that same zealousness for him from their heart that those priests in, in Moses' day had. Because by now they had grown so complacent. They had grown, they, it was just like it was mundane everything. And you know, I think about my own life, and probably your life too, when you first came to the, your faith in the Lord, or maybe you rededicated your life to your Lord, how on fire you were for Jesus. Man, you were zealous for him. You feared the Lord, but you know what? Complacency creeps in. And, and after a while, things become kind of mundane, and it's just, you know, church is just a thing you do if you got time. You know, it's just, and, and you just you serve the Lord, well, you know, that's good enough. And we get this complacent attitude, and we don't fear the Lord as we should. And, you know, how your heart, what your heart's attitude is, it's reflected on how you do ministry. It really is. Verse 5, chapter 2. My covenant was with him, one of life and peace, and I gave them to him that he might fear me, so he feared me and was reverent before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth, and injustice was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and turned many away from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should keep knowledge, and people should seek the law from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have departed from the way. You have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. The priest's sole duty was to stand before God and to represent the people to him as a priest and intercessor, but he was also to stand before the people and represent God to the people. And God takes that serious, and he took it serious. It was an important function. They had to accurately represent the Lord to the people. Again, going back to what Peter said, you and I, we're a royal priesthood. We're priests too in that sense. Do we have that kind of impact on others around us as the Levites were supposed to have? The people go, man, that person fears the Lord. Man, that person honors the Lord. Look at their life, how they're living their life. The failure of those priests to serve the Lord in fear and integrity, it affected the people they ministered to. That's why God's speaking to to the priests, and that's why he's speaking to the pastors, the clergy, and and anyone in leadership. What you do, you're in a fishbowl, man. People are watching your life. And it's true for pastors. My life's, our life, we're we're like little goldfish swimming around for everybody to see what's going on, you know. Sometimes we have not the best days, but sometimes we have little arguments. You guys maybe see us kind of back and forth. We can't hide it. We can try to, but that doesn't work too good. But you know, in reality... When you guys go outside of this into your families, into your workplaces, school, wherever you are, you're, you're being watched if people know that you're a Christian. You're like, oh. 
and, and they're watching your life. How do, how do you represent Christ? Their failure to represent Christ accurately, to serve the Lord with zeal, with zeal and, and, and integrity and everything, it stumbled others. It was important, it was they, and they stumbled others. Verse 9, Therefore, I also have made you contemptible and base before all the people because you have not kept my ways, but have shown partiality in the law. So that's the end of that first part of the second session. We're not going to go into the next part of that section. But, you know, I had to think about this. I wonder what happened to those priests. I mean, did they, did they respond to Malachi's message? You know, we don't know. But one thing we do know, that was the last warning God gave them for 400 years. You might say, oh, they must have, must have got things right, and so God didn't have to rebuke them anymore. Well, you know what? 400 years later, John the Baptist shows on, up on the scene. Jesus shows up on the scene. And uh, the Pharisees and the scribes and the priests, they were corrupt. They were corrupt, and, and they were severely rebuked. And within... You know, 70 years, Jerusalem was destroyed. The priests, the temple was completely wiped out. There was no more need for those priests anymore. Well, there was no more need after Jesus rose from the dead, of course, but, but uh, they were just taken out, basically. So I don't think necessarily that they, they heard the Lord, and the Lord's like, I guess I don't have to warn them anymore. You know what I think happened? They grew so calloused. They heard the message over and over again. They had all these prophecies. They're like, yeah, big deal. And so the Lord said, okay. I'm done talking to you. You see, that's how the Holy Spirit works in our lives. He convicts us when we're in sin. It's like, man, you need to change. You need to change. You need to change. And we go, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. But if we don't do it, after a while, that voice gets quieter and quieter, and pretty soon you don't hear it anymore. It's not that the Lord's not speaking. It's that you're not listening anymore. The Lord's like, I'm not going to keep warning you over and over about the same thing. That's a bad place to be in. That's where these priests were in. So... I don't think it was good for them. I think the silence meant that judgment was coming because of what was going on, and and history bears out that that's what happened. What a bummer to end this last Sunday. (laughs) Now that everybody's like, ooh. Um, Next week, uh, week, if if you're able to make it next week, I think it's going to be awesome. Uh, We're going to be looking at a holy institution which the Lord loves. A holy institution which the Lord loves. I'll give you a clue. It's marriage. <laughs> so the next chapter, or the next portion of this chapter, deals with, with marriage and stuff. So I think it will be a good, a good chapter to study and stuff. But anyways, um, yeah, I wish I could have ended that on a real happy, happy note. But uh, that's kind of the end of the Old Testament. In fact, the book of Malachi ends with a curse. But praise God, Jesus Christ came to be a curse for us. He died on the cross to pay the price for our sins. And uh, to set us free from the, from the power of sin, to set us free from the power of death. And you and I have that opportunity to have that relationship with Jesus Christ this morning. We can have that relationship with Jesus Christ. And all, that, all we have to do is just, well, all we have to do, we, we need to recognize that we're a sinner, that, that we don't deserve God's love. But then recognize that Jesus, by his grace, he died on the cross for us. The Bible says while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for you to clean up your life. He's not waiting for you to clean up your life. You can't clean up your life. You can kind of do some stuff on the outside to make it look good, but you've got to have a new heart. And the only way that you can have a new heart is when Jesus Christ comes into your life and he gives you a new heart. 
And so this morning, you know, I just want to end with a prayer. And uh, I'm going to pray the, a sinner's prayer, basically. And if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ this morning, man, what a, what a perfect time to pray that and to say, Lord, please forgive me and come into my heart and be my Lord and my Savior. And you can start that relationship with Jesus Christ this morning. You can be forgiven of your sins. You can have the, the real, honest hope of eternal life because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. So why don't we go ahead and go, Lord, in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your message this morning. Lord God, once again, you were speaking to us. And Lord, this morning, I just acknowledge before you that I am a sinner, that I am in need of salvation. Lord God, I thank you that you died on the cross for my sins. I thank you for paying the price for me that I couldn't pay. And I believe that you rose again from the dead. And Lord, this morning, I ask that you would come into my heart to be my Lord and my Savior. Be the Lord of my life this morning. I praise you, Lord. I thank you that you, that you say if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, thank you. Lord, this morning, I offer my life to you as a living sacrifice. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.